A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron, and this is the show where I will be speaking to a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. Now, you might think that belonging to a political party or getting involved in a local campaign is just not the kind of thing that Christians should be getting distracted by. But I want to make the case that you should not particularly join a political party or even vote in a particular way, of course. But we should, as Christians, take a real interest in what is going on in our country and in the world. And we should pray about the issues and the people involved in an informed way. Well, today on the show, we're talking about what it's like to look after your constituency when people are losing their jobs, struggling to feed their family, and sadly, very often are dying at an alarming rate through this crisis. How do you care for your constituency when a global pandemic is destroying people's everyday lives? Well, I'll be speaking to Rachel Maskell, a Christian who is the Labour MP for York Central in just a minute. But before we speak to Rachel, Cara Bentley has a roundup of some of the news this week. Well, most of the news has been COVID related, of course, but we had opposition day on Monday where the party that isn't in government gets to set the agenda. So Labour chose to debate keeping the recent £20 increase to universal credit payments permanently. It passed because the Conservatives abstained, but because it's opposition day, it's more of an indicator of where MPs stand on an issue. But interestingly, six Conservatives voted with Labour, and it's not impossible that the increase will stay after March, especially if the pandemic hasn't got much better. But there are reasons to hope the COVID situation might improve. Vaccine centres will be open 24 hours a day in some areas by the end of the month. Would you get out of bed at three in the morning to get a vaccine? I must admit the last time I got an injection, the nurse very kindly listened to me talk about the Church of England's General Synod to distract myself. But the quicker we vaccinate the nation, the sooner life will hopefully return to normal. Over four million people have now been vaccinated, including Justin Welby, who got the jab because he's a chaplain in a hospital. And he actually said that accepting the jab is part of Christ's call to love our neighbour as ourselves. There is some concern about the rollout steaming ahead in some areas and leaving others behind. But in England, some people over 70 are starting to be invited as well, as they've done all the over 80s in their area. Tim, do you know anyone who's getting a vaccine soon? Well, yes, that sound you can hear is my dad turning cartwheels in excitement as the over 70s now are permitted to go for their vaccine. Like millions of others, for him, the vaccine equals hope. Or it does if you trust what you are told. Two massively important practical themes for Christians there, hope and trust. If you are feeling liberated, excited and optimistic about the vaccine, good, me too. That's what hope feels like. It's a less shallow hope than that which motivates many people in our culture, living for Saturday night or for a week's holiday or a night in with Netflix and a bottle of wine. But let's remember that Christian hope is even more certain and infinitely more exciting than the vaccine. But does it feel it? Let's remember, if you are trusting in Jesus, then your place in heaven is guaranteed on the basis of the fact of his death for you and his resurrection. Your place in heaven does not depend on how much you feel excited about that prospect, though we should feel excited. But to agree to take the vaccine, or indeed to accept the government's lockdown rules, both of those things involve trust. Trusting the scientists, 
trusting the government's advisors and trusting the government's interpretation of that advice. Do you trust them? On the available evidence, I do. Science isn't the enemy of Christianity, even though some people mistakenly think it is. As Johannes Kepler so wisely reflected, as he was discovering the mysteries of our solar system in the 17th century, he said, I am merely thinking God's thoughts after him. And I see also no evidence for deception from government on their plan for tackling the virus. But we live in a time when people trust those in authority less than ever before. Is it because scientists are less trustworthy than they used to be? I don't think so. Are politicians less trustworthy these days? No, I don't think we're any better or worse than ever. I think it's just that we are a society with a trust problem, a lack of trust problem. They say that truth is the first casualty of war. Well, maybe truth is the chief casualty of the culture war. Fake news is everywhere. And as Christians who are commanded to value the truth, it is our responsibility not to accept or to spread fake news. Indeed, to counter it where we have the tools to do so. Someone can say something that you passionately disagree with without them being a liar. Someone you generally approve of may say something that presses all your buttons, but it might not actually be true. I've fallen into both of those traps. It is easy to do, but it's ungodly and it's a poor witness. Thou shalt not bear false witness means that you should think twice and pray hard before you retweet or before you share on Facebook. Careless talk costs lives and sharing things that aren't true or indeed sharing things that you cannot be sure are true or undermining statements that are true could kill someone. We saw that in the riots on Capitol Hill when people believed a lie that the US elections were rigged. And we see it in the UK when people believe that COVID is fake and that the vaccine is dangerous and that the lockdown simply doesn't apply to them. So your hope is in something far more amazing than the, even the amazing vaccine. Though we should thank God for it and thank the scientists who have produced it. And in response to that sure and certain hope that we have in Christ, we should be living faithfully. And that means living and tweeting truthfully and loving those who do get bound up in fake news, knowing that but for God's grace, that could have been you. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, this week on the show, we're talking about how you care for your constituency when it has and your constituents have hit rock bottom in the middle of the worst crisis that many of us can remember. How do you love the people that you're uh, elected to represent in a practical way? How do you care for them? How do you act for their good? What is it to be a Christian in Parliament at a time like this. Well, to talk about this, we are joined by my friend Rachel Maskell, who is the Labour MP for York Central and a Christian. And I'd li really like to start, Rachel, first of all, by welcoming you to the programme. Hello. Good morning. Morning. It's really great to join you today. It's wonderful to have you, you with us. I wanted to really start off. We On this show, we know that everybody doesn't have a neat testimony and we should be slightly suspicious of those who do, maybe a little bit. But Rachel, tell me a little bit about your journey into faith, how you became a Christian. It's great how God weaves everybody's journey in a different way to tell a different story. And um, I certainly grew up in early 70s and um, in my village, you know, going to 
church was something that we would do. Um, There's a lot of high Christian content, I would say, at school. And um, I believed those Bible stories when um, I learned them and, and very much um, appreciated them. But when I was 11, I attended the Christian Union in my secondary school um, and heard the gospel in a different way and realised that I had done wrong and um my way back to God was through Jesus Christ and accepting him, his death and his resurrection in order to restore that relationship to God. And that has guided my life ever since. And um, obviously, you know, it's a rocky road at times and there's challenges and questions, of course, which come into your mind. But ultimately, I know that I have a firm foundation in Christ, which has taken me through the years. I think that's a wonderful story. And it's not I guess it resonates with me to a large degree because often people will say um, that they heard the gospel, or at least it went in, um, many, many times before um, the bell rang. And we should never think that just because someone's heard the gospel 10 times that that's enough. And God is incredibly gracious. Uh, The opportunity may come along the 120th time. Uh, that you hear it. Um, that's a wonderful, a wonderful account, Rachel. Now, I, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit more about how you ended up um, joining the Labour Party, standing for Parliament. How did the whole politics thing come about for you? Oh, well, that was a, another long journey. I guess politics was always in my home, whether kind of trade unions or my uncle in particular, huge influence. I would always uh, long for our heated discussions about hot t- political topics. He himself was a, a radical penal reformer and um, certainly um, in the days of Wilson was um, advising on on how to make our prisons fit for purpose so it was great being able to always engage with him but the issues around me again kind of Thatcher was uh, prime minister and there were many things that were happening particularly on employment and seeing mass strikes that were happening across the country and just those questioning about where is the equality, where is the fairness and justice in work? And I think that kind of took me through um, a kind of a political journey. I joined the Labour Party when I was at school and uh, went on to get involved in student politics, as you do. And then when I started work, became very active in my trade union, representing uh, my colleagues. I I worked in the NHS as a a physio. And um, then that kind of led to so many things, eventually going on to work for the trade union movement, um, becoming a, a senior official there so very much engaging with politics all the way and really fighting for for justice fighting for the very issues that the members I had the privilege of representing really cared about and really trying to push government further on so many things I always say um, in politics I, I dream in revolutions but actually it's all about nudging different agendas and certainly an opportunity came in 2015 I had recently moved up to York I really felt called to that place and the MP stood down I thought oh that, that's really interesting I look forward to seeing somebody selected here little knowing at the time that that was going to be me and um, as people were pushing and nudging me forward I thought okay I, I will give this a, a go and uh, just a few weeks later I found myself as the candidate and three months later um, there I was in parliament representing my incredible community that is an amazing story and you, I, I've heard you say before that you felt drawn to York you hadn't God didn't give any clues as to what he'd drawn you to no well um I sense that that passion in me was always about trying to build a, a strong community and to bring people together 
And York is like a big village in so many ways. It has got that sense of um, community to it. When I moved here in tracing my family tree, I came across um, my great, 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 great grandparents were had lived here and very much played a role here. So um, it's been a real kind of returning home journey of discovery as well, which um, I love that history I didn't know before coming here. I knew they were out and about around this part of Yorkshire, but I didn't know that. So um, in some ways I, I came back home, which um, has just added to the story, I think. That's amazing. Have you ever had people, particularly in your church life, question whether politics is a thing that Christians really ought to be dabbling with? I have. Um, I think I've always been so clear, right from kind of a a young age, about the importance of politics. And um, it depends how we view politics. If we look at politics being that that thing that happens in Westminster, then clearly I can understand why people uh, turn their nose up. But actually, um, if you think about the, the world of politics, it's about how you use your power in order to better society and to bring about change which has positive influence on people's lives then I think people do get it and I think it's a disgrace of Westminster if I can Mm. put it that way which um, turns people off but actually um, politics itself is a process of reform and um, let's face it we're all involved in different areas of reform in different ways and use the the tools around us to achieve that so actually it's just a, a you know we are in a privileged position in being able to say this is how we should shape our nation in a particular direction. And obviously we debate that and agree and disagree, but that's certainly a a platform, but it's not the only platform. And I think many people just look to Westminster and think that's where it all happens. Well, when you get there, I have to say it doesn't. (laughs) And actually I think there is that, that really um, strong mix of civil action and and civil engagement as well as um, moving things forward. And it's that combination in Westminster and in community, which can really make a nation turn. And often the way that things happen in politics is because of the amazing things people are doing on the ground. You're listening to A Mucky Business with me, Tim Farron. We're talking about how faith has played a role in our jobs as MPs with Rachel Maskell, the Labour MP for York Central. Well, Rachel, you talked just then about how politics really is in communities, in people's lives, which begs the question as to what our role as Christian MPs uh, is and, and, and should be. And something that I'm very keen to focus on in this programme is that people should see politics through Christian eyes as a form of service. And I've heard you say very much that you felt in particular that you've been called to serve the people of York. Tell us a little bit more about that. Indeed, um, our political system has a direct link with constituencies, and I think that's a, a real a positive because um, we're then in relationship with the people that have elected us. And how I see it, we've got a community, there's a, a boundary around that community, and we're there to serve that community and to be their voice, their advocate in the world of Westminster and to ensure that their voices are heard at the seat of power, but also to give people that opportunity in their community to air their voice in the first place. So really central to that is creating spaces for people to talk, people to come to you with their issues and often to provide wise counsel, but also steer people through uh, a whole network of uh, 
different organisations and, and mechanisms in order to solve their problems and to take them on ourselves. So very much, I think, the role of the MP is to be that advocate, but also to take the voice back into community at a time when you need leadership. And often that means us speaking into that space, um, but also just being there, living out our lives with um, our fellow um, neighbours. And, and that's really important too. Um, you know, often <laughs> I have my best conversations in the supermarket or, um, you know, when uh, walking around uh, York because um, people just have uh, uh, something they really want to share. So I think being there, being visible and engaged is what our role is. Yeah, I think that's massively important. I think I have missed and I've had to try to recreate via other you know, mechanisms, accidental contact uh, with people, whether, it, as you say, market squares, uh, supermarkets, all the other places that we, we happen to be physically if you live in your community. And that's where you pick up all the things you didn't expect to pick up, but you're really pleased that you did. Uh, now, I guess there is nothing more crucial for us to discuss at this moment than what it means to serve your community in the midst of its greatest need, the mm. coronavirus pandemic. You, of course, helped to uh, bring your community uh, alongside at a time when you were ahead of the curve, sadly, uh, whilst people just, you know, just under a year ago were going about their normal lives. Some people booking their holidays off to Cheltenham races, those who do that sort of thing, uh, carrying on as if nothing had changed. York reported the UK's two first coronavirus cases. Tell us a little bit about how that happened and what that meant for you in your role. Well, clearly we were seeing what was happening in Wuhan in China and elsewhere in Northern Europe. And certainly when um, I heard that two people had been taken to hospital with uh, coronavirus and those days uh, people were wearing hazmat suits and um, lots of precautions were being taken, I obviously needed to respond to that situation and certainly um, seeking advice as to, you know, what should we be doing and to be able to reassure a community at the same time because people were very frightened. They didn't know should we all hide away or, or you know can we carry on life as normal um, and therefore I had a lot of contact with ministers and, and directors of public health as to the way that the government was handling this and, and certainly kind of the plans they had and the plans clearly which weren't weren't there as to how to manage the situation but being a re reassuring voice but also uh, being a point of communication and I found this when we've faced all sorts of uh, issues as a community from flooding to all sorts of things that I've had to deal with is always being there communicating with the community is really important so that people have an understanding of what is happening and how to um, manage this situation of course things were very different at that time to what they are now and um, but at the time you know we had contact tracing in place which was being done nationally um, and there were lots of people which had been involved for instance individuals that were staying at a hotel what about the staff they had a lot of fears you know if they would become poorly we just didn't know how contagious this virus was at the time um, so there's a, a, a heavy burden really to be able to get things right on, on my behalf and, and to kind of communicate the concerns that the community had as well. And since then of course uh, with the pandemic having spread and tens and tens and thousands of people having caught the disease and indeed uh, huge numbers of people having sadly passed away. What does it mean for you as a constituency MP? How has the pandemic affected the work that you do and the service that you provide for your community? I 
think ultimately I just want to keep people safe. Um, I think that's my driving motive through this, just to try and put my arms around my community and ensure that it's doing everything it can. And that certainly um, has driven me with regards to how we manage the containment of the virus. And I've worked very closely with my public health team here in York in really trying to push the numbers down. We've been going to extraordinary lengths. And just before um, Christmas, we just had a handful of cases a day, which was absolutely miraculous. There's no other word for it in the way that we um, were able to control the virus. Um, but at the same time, recognising the real economic pain that people have experienced. And that's why investing in the community has been so important. We, um, like you, Tim, in, in an area really dependent on tourism, you know, it's it's really, really challenging. And I am deeply concerned about the mental health and well-being of people. Obviously, their financial um, struggles that they've got at the moment, the lack of support they've had from government packages um, for many of them, but also how we recover from this as a community. So I've, I've just spent my time, multiple surgeries, um, talking to people, listening, engaging with agencies, and also trying to put a recovery plan in place, which will create the jobs for the future, the Green New Deal here in York and other things which can really be transformative for building a stronger and more resilient economy in the future. We're far from out of this um, at the moment and we've got many challenges ahead. And, you know, I try and listen with wisdom, carefully seek counsel and obviously um, work as with as many people as possible to try and get the right solutions in place. It's interesting you mentioned that. I think that uh, often as Christians, we can be disappointed because we pray for things and expect God to deliver things that he's not promised uh, often reminded that wisdom is one of those things he has promised to give us if we ask for it and never have we needed it more. I'm really struck as well, Rachel, by your immense your personal sense of responsibility for your community and your your forensic care for it, uh, which I think is a, a wonderful model. For me, uh, often being challenged that, you know, if you're a, a Christian, Bible-believing Christian and you're in politics, you know, what what is your role? And it certainly struck me that it's not to legislate to make people who are not Christians behave as though they were. It is to serve and it is to model the gospel in how you uh, react and treat uh, other people. And that seems to me, Rachel, exactly what it is that that you that you do. Um, just finally, as we move towards an end, we are obviously all in different places. I'm in Westland, you're in York. We haven't been in Parliament together at the same time very much over the last year or so. Um, but without giving away any deep, dark secrets, a group of us meet every week through Christians in, in Parliament for fellowship and Bible study. How important is it to you that we're still able to have that kind of fellowship, that it's cross-party, and that it is something that is about, uh, I guess, nurturing our work with God rather than having any kind of common political agenda. Wednesday mornings, which is when we meet, is like a little nugget of gold um, in, in the week. And um, I have to say, it's really great to be able to just read a bit of scripture um, and really kind of pour over it and, and apply it to the lives that we have as, as politicians and to think of, about that, that journey that we've got as Christians as well. And to um, spend that time um, listening to each other, supporting one another and praying together. And I think growing in that dependency um, on God as a kind of politicians together is really important. And the fact we are cross party, often we may not agree on policy issues, but one thing we are united in is in Christ. And 
um, I believe that's you know a, a central part of what we model because I think politics can be done in a very um, different way and in a better way and a more collegiate way and I think as Christians we've got a responsibility to model that and to ensure that we bring about transformation in our nation and I would add the word radically um, to that in order to um, improve the opportunities the welfare and well-being of the people we're there to serve. Rachel, thanks ever so much. You remind me of a, a phrase used by our friend Andy Flanagan that we should always put the kingdom ahead of our tribe. Um, and you certainly do that, Rachel. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for everything you do for your community in Parliament and for being a really amazing Christian witness across the country. It's been a real pleasure having you. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. This is your chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. It could be ethical, political or personal. And this week, Tom from Newcastle under Lyme has been in touch. Hi, Tim. Uh, I'm interested to know how you manage to bite your tongue, especially when you're in a public forum. When you hear things being said that you know either aren't true or won't come to fruition. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. That was a super question. And I guess the lies or dishonesty in politics... I think there are probably three sources of it. You've got the well-intentioned promise that isn't kept, though the politician might have meant it to be. You've then got flannel, where people are just saying things that they believe to be generally true, but it's all about winning elections and not appearing uh, to look too bad. And then thirdly, you've got downright lies. I do feel that we see more lies today that the politician, as they speak them, uh, no to be lies than was the case before. One of the things about the culture war is that people will find themselves agreeing with people who they always agree with, irrespective of what they say. And it's not uh, what you believe, but who you believe. If you like person A, if you like the cut of their jib, then uh, whatever comes out of their mouth, you will endorse. And if you think person B is a terrible, terrible person, then however wise what they say may be, you're going to dismiss it. And I find that deeply, deeply troubling. When you hear something which you know to be not true, from my perspective, there is part of me that just rolls my eyes and thinks, well, God's in control, um, justice will be done. And then also... I'm reminded that I don't think, whilst we are called to be appropriate and gentle in our interactions, I don't think we're called as Christians and Christians in politics to be neutral between the truth and a lie. So should we, we should call out a lie when we hear it. The challenge is, though, it might be a lot easier to do that when it's somebody in the other party or the other tribe who commits that lie. And you might deal with things differently when it's somebody in your own tribe. And that's an inconsistency that I think we all need to be very, very wary of. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. I think it's so important that when we pray, that we pray in an informed way. And it's vital that we do pray for our nation, for our world and for the political context that we find ourselves in, for the people and for the issues. So I'd love you to be doing that over the coming days. So let's pray together now. Loving Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for Rachel Maskell, for her witness and her committed service to her community in York. Grant her wisdom, help her to continue to be a faithful servant of you and indeed a committed servant of the people of York. We pray, Lord, as this week we see the transfer of power in the United States, that that power will be transferred 
peacefully, that that country would become a more united one than it is today, and that the gospel will be heard in every community and every corner of that huge country. Lord, we thank you also for the work of our National Health Service and the volunteers and the staff, and of the indeed all the scientists who are behind the coronavirus vaccine. We pray for a rapid and effective rolling out of that vaccine. And we thank you that it does give us hope of a year ahead that may be better than the year behind. But Lord, help us not to put our ultimate hope in that vaccine, knowing that instead our great hope is in the one who defeated death once and for all, for all of us. Uh, may this be a country that returns to following the Lord uh, and through the Lord Jesus Christ does so uh, in millions, in numbers never hitherto seen before. Lord, we just lift up to you all these people, all these issues, and we ask for your hand to be upon them. In Christ's name. Amen.